So our ongoing series through the book of Genesis moves into a new member of our faith family tree with Jacob. Jacob was one of Isaac's sons and the grandson of Abraham and Sarah, and we are jumping into the middle of his life, and so there's a lot that's happened that has brought us to this point, so I'm going to give you the the Cliff Notes version of his life today. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, and we are told that even in utero, Jacob and Esau had a pretty serious sibling rivalry that they were fighting within their mother, Rebecca, and it was apparently so bad that Rebecca at one point says, if this, it's what it's, if this is what it's like being pregnant, then why am I even alive? And everyone who's ever been pregnant maybe has known that feeling. The struggle was real. But the fighting doesn't end at birth. Esau is born first, but Jacob is right behind him, clutching on to Esau's heel. And as they get older, the conflict continues to intensify, that even though they were twins, they could not have been more different as people. Esau is a hunter, a man of the field, a man who fits pretty comfortably within traditionally defined gender roles. Jacob, on the other hand, is a man who prefers the indoors. He prefers to do things like cooking, and I'm a man after Jacob's own heart. And Esau, even at birth, was covered all over in red hair, and Jacob, on the other hand, was described as being smooth-skinned. And that is not an overshare that will play into stuff later on, and we'll see that in just a second. So Isaac and Rebekah, Esau and Jacob's mom and dad, really struggle as parents. They pour fuel onto the fire of these conflict-riddled twins in the form of favoritism. Isaac favors Esau, and Rebekah prefers Jacob. Two camps, two different groups within the same family. And favoritism is never a good thing, and we'll see how that pattern plays out next week. We'll talk some more about that next week. And a lot of the conflict between Jacob and Esau surrounded the receiving of the blessing from their father, Isaac. Esau was born first, even if it's just moments as the firstborn. And so culturally, he is entitled to receive a blessing from his father, Isaac. And so Jacob and Rebekah are unwilling to accept that. They both seize whatever opportunities they can to try and steal what belongs to Esau by birth. So Jacob's first attempt at stealing that birthright is when Esau has been working in the fields all day and he comes back into the tent and he says, I am starving to death. Now, Esau is probably being a little dramatic here. He's probably not actually starving to death. It's like when a teenager comes in from sports practice talking about how they're about to die, they're so hungry. And and Jacob, remember, likes being inside. He likes doing things like cooking. So he's been making a stew all day. And so he hears Esau complaining about how hungry he is. And he says, hey, Esau, you want this bowl of stew? You have to sell me your birthright. A steep price to pay. And Esau pays it. He sells his birthright to Jacob. But it is not Esau's birthright to sell. Isaac is the one who can give that blessing. And so the time finally arrives for Esau to receive his blessing, and Isaac is elderly. He's actually on his deathbed at this point, and he can no longer see. So Rebekah and Jacob cook up a plan. She'll send Jacob into the tent while Esau is away. Esau is actually away gathering supplies to make the last meal for his father Isaac. And while he's doing that, Jacob and Rebekah are scheming on how to steal his blessing. But so The plan is to send Jacob into the tent and present him as Esau. But remember, Esau is hairy, and Jacob is described as being smooth-skinned. 
But that's not going to deter Rebekah and Jacob. Rebekah goes and takes a pelt from one of the goats and places it on Jacob's arms and neck and sends him into the tent. And when Isaac touches Jacob, he thinks that it's Esau, and he receives the blessing in his place. Rebekah and Jacob conspiring together steal Esau's birthright. Rebekah, Isaac's wife, Jacob, Isaac's son, Rebekah, Esau's mother, steal this blessing, and they trick this husband who's on his deathbed. And so when Esau returns and finds out what's happened, his anger boils over into promises of vengeance. Esau says that when he finds Jacob, he is going to kill him, and Rebekah, wanting to protect her favorite son, sends Jacob away. She sends him to live with Laban, who is Abraham's nephew and Rebekah's brother. And Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. These are Jacob's cousins, and Jacob marries both of them. So Laban is not only Jacob's uncle, but also his father-in-law twice. The family tree is becoming a straight line. So uncle father-in-law Laban (laughs) is not a positive character in this whole story. He too is a deceiver. Apparently it ran in the family, Rebecca, Jacob, Laban, they all like to deceive each other. So So when Jacob arrives, shows up at Laban's house, he wants to marry Rachel, again his cousin, and only Rachel. And Laban says, okay, you can marry her, but only if you work for me for seven years. And so Jacob does that. And as the seven years end, Jacob is getting ready for the wedding. And on the wedding day, Laban switches the brides and gives Jacob Leah instead, one of his daughters, mind you. Laban is a huckster and a con man. And so he says, if you want to marry Rachel, as well as Leah, again, his daughters, Jacob's cousins, if you want to marry Rachel now, you have to give me another seven years of work. So Jacob does it. Laban really takes every opportunity he can to exploit and take advantage of Jacob. Not only does he switch the brides on the wedding day, again his daughters, to exact more labor from Jacob, he also keeps changing the wages on him. When Jacob arrives at Laban's house, Laban doesn't have a whole lot of wealth, and that wealth came in the form of livestock and herds and sheep and goats and all of those sorts of things. But Jacob proves to be rather skilled when it comes to raising those sorts of things, and so Laban becomes exceedingly wealthy off of Jacob's labor. He exploits Jacob for all he's worth. And this goes on for 20 years until finally Jacob flips the tables on his father-in-law slash uncle. He essentially cons Laban out of the best of the herd. And once Laban gets wise to what's happening, he is furious with Jacob. It seems to happen a lot in Jacob's life. He steals things and then people chase him down. And so Jacob packs up all of his possessions, his wives, his children, and his herds, and he runs back towards Canaan, back towards home, back towards the place where he was raised. Laban and the members of his household eventually catch up to Jacob. The two kind of work things out. They establish a covenant between each other, and then Laban returns home and allows Jacob to continue on his way. But Jacob returning home means that he is going to come face to face with that problem that he ran away from 20 years earlier. His brother Esau has promised to kill Jacob, and that hasn't gone away in 20 years. But Jacob is slick, remember? He's a a con man, he's a huckster, he's a trickster who's always up to some shenanigans. Jacob is a, a shameful opportunist 
He's always looking for an upper hand to exploit. And so he sends messengers from his camp to go and to speak to Esau. He sends them with more than a message. He actually sends them with a bribe, a rather large bribe, in fact, with oxen, donkey, flocks, and servants. He says, I can give all of this to you, Esau, if you let this little feud between us go. Think about that. Jacob is offering Esau the signs of that blessing he stole from him 20 years earlier. And when Jacob's messengers return, they say, Esau and 400 men are coming here to meet you. (laughs) You understand what he's thinking, I see. Esau, he thinks, is coming to make good on that oath he pledged 20 years ago to kill Jacob when he finds him. And so Jacob is afraid, as we all would be, and so he splits his camp into two, thinking that if Esau attacks one camp, the other one can get away. And then Jacob makes an earnest prayer to God, asking for protection. And then Jacob does what he always does. He starts scheming. He thinks that he can buy his way out of this. He sends that bribe ahead of him again, hoping to appease Esau. 200 lambs, 20 rams, 30 camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, and 40 donkeys. All that livestock marching out to meet Esau. And then that night, Jacob sends his family, his wives, his children, and his servants across the river, and he remains behind. This is where we enter into the story that I just read, that little strange story that caused so many confusing faces. Jacob, who has spent his life conning and scheming and tricking his way into blessings and wealth, is now alone by himself in the dark. He is away from all of those signs of his blessing, all of those signs of the blessing that he stole from Esau, the sounds of his family fording the river getting fainter and further away. If Jacob's story wasn't already entertaining enough, it gets even more so here. That as Jacob stands there in the darkness, his family gone, his stomach had nuts, his brother and 400 men on their way to meet him, Jacob suddenly out of nowhere is jumped, assaulted by some mysterious person in the darkness. We're not sure initially who this person is or even what sort of being this is. And they wrestle all through the night until dawn and neither one of them wins. This is a a no-holds-bar street fight. There are some dirty tricks being played here. I remember when I was younger, my brother, who's six and a half years younger than I, we would wrestle all the time. And it was a lot more fun when we were a lot younger because I could beat him up because I was so much older than him. Uh, But I've told you all before that when he went to high school, he got really into weightlifting and he got really good at Olympic-style wrestling. And so as we got older, he could beat me at wrestling, hands down, and he's even bigger than I am now. Um, But he had one fatal flaw in his wrestling strategy when we were wrestling at home. He played by the rules. I, however, like Jacob, seized every advantage I could. I wrestled dirty. And my brother would say, that's not regulation. I would say, there's no referee here. This is a no-holds-bar street fight. This unknown assailant, seeing that he hasn't won and morning is arriving quickly, again, what kind of creature is this that can't be seen in the daylight, strikes Jacob on the hip and dislocates the joints. But Jacob, the cunning and crafty person he is, doesn't let that be the end of it. He grabs onto the man and holds on for dear life. The man says, let me go. The sun is almost up. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. There Jacob is again. Dirty tricks and tenacity in trying to secure a blessing for himself. It's in Jacob's clinging on to this mysterious person that we find out 
that it is indeed God that Jacob has been wrestling all night. He's been in a knockdown, drag out, no holds bar street fight with the Almighty. You didn't think the soap opera could get any weirder, and yet here we are, Jacob and God wrestling on the riverbank. There are no flocks, no herds, no children or wives, or the things that Jacob would typically use to try and get out of an encounter. There is just this chance to hold on for dear life. There with the past, with Laban behind him, and what he fears is a coming conflict with his brother in front of him, Jacob meets God face to face, and they wrestle. Jacob, who seems to be able to slip and con his way out of every situation in his life, is unable to get away from God. And this is honestly one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. There are a lot of great, entertaining stories in the Bible. We've read a few of those already in the book of Genesis. But this one sort of speaks to me in a personal way. God who meets Jacob face to face in a wrestling match on the shores of the Jabbok River is very different from the God that perhaps many of us are used to. This is not the the God that we Christians have inherited from Greek philosophy, the unmovable mover that is sometimes codified within our creeds as immutable, incomprehensible, and without passion. A God without passion does not wrestle a trickster in the dark on the banks of the Jabbok River. This is not the clockmaker God of modernity who simply sets the world in motion and then takes a big step back and lets everything unfold as it will. This is not the the sort of God that I grew up with, the angry father who we have to sort of walk on eggshells around, or the great king that is enthroned above, who like some sort of autocrat demands ultimate allegiance, that most troubling version of God that we met in our reading last week in the near sacrifice of Isaac. The God I grew up with was always watching, always ready for us to slip up, always ready to punish us. The God I grew up with while being described as gracious was incredibly thin-skinned and so easily offended. No, God is very different here. This is a God who can not only be wrestled, but a God who wants to wrestle, a God who initiates the wrestling match. This is a God who is wild and free and unpredictable, God who surprises and cannot be confined. This is a God who is incredibly intimate and imminent. This is the creator God who stooped low at creation and formed us from the dust of the ground, re-entering creation again and wrestling on the muddy banks of the river. This is a God who can be wrestled with and struggled with all night long, a God who in order to win has to resort to non-regulation moves. And even still, Jacob is clinging on to him, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is the God that I have been searching for my entire life. I've told you all before that I have gone through my own period of theological transformation. That is a big part of my life. And as I left behind Laban's house, that version of Christianity that I grew up with, I was standing in a place of great vulnerability, the past behind me and an uncertain future in front of me. And the God I found in that process is a God that I could wrestle with. I discovered that God was not as thin-skinned as I had been taught, but God, and that God was not not so easily offended by my honest questions. I found a God who delighted in my curiosity, a God who was not so willing to be confined by the boundaries that my tradition had placed around God, that when I said, God, I'm not sure that I believe that anymore about you, and God says, yeah, I'm not sure how people came up with that idea about me. (laughs) I found a God who was not remote and far away, but one that was as close as my own breath and as close as my own dreams and vision for my life. I found a God that wasn't so predictable and easily calcified within any system of theology, 
but a God who could surprise me the way he surprises Jacob, jumping out of the darkness and wrestling all night long. This is a God who doesn't simply hide behind eloquent theological language, but a God who wants to be known. The God I found in my life's journey is the God that Jacob meets face to face on the dark shores of the Jabbok River. This is the God that Jacob clings on to and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob refuses to let go of God. Jacob, who has cheated his way to blessings and conned his way to wealth, is blessed by God by refusing to let go. In the midst of the struggle, as the wrestling match drags on, he will not let go of God. And perhaps what is even more true is that God will not let go of him. In this wrestling match with God, Jacob is blessed for real this time. Jacob, the trickster, huckster, con man, leaves this moment changed. His hip out of socket means he will no longer swagger around with arrogance, but he will have to be a little more humble throughout his life. He leaves this moment and he lives in a new way. Jacob will still have struggles. He will struggle as a parent just as his parents did, and we'll see that next week. But as Esau arrives with the 400 men behind him, Jacob and Esau embrace each other. Esau is not there to kill Jacob, but to forgive. It's this great moment of redemption. And Jacob gives to Esau all of those sources of wealth that signs a blessing, gives them to Esau, not as a bribe, not as a way of trying to get his way out of a relationship with Esau, but as a gift to him. But more than that, Jacob is blessed with a new name, one that we'll all recognize, Israel, the one who strives and struggles with God. And remember that names signify character in the Bible. Israel, the people of God, are known for the ways that they, like Jacob, wrestle and struggle with God, that God is not far from us. God is on every riverbank with the difficult past and the uncertain future in front of us. God finds us in every vulnerable moment, God delights in our wonderful curiosity and our most sincere questions. It may not seem like a blessing to wrestle with God. Who wants to jump out of the dark? Who wants to be jumped out of the dark at the water's edge? But the blessing is that God, who is all-powerful, who could escape any one of our grasps, allows us to hold on to God. And it may be that for many of us, Wrestling with God is the only way that we are able to hold on to God. To hold on to God at every river's edge, the difficult past behind us, the uncertain future in front of us. Holding on to God where we are most vulnerable, away from every safety and comfort we have ever known. Holding on to God through our most serious and sincere questions and wondering. And I think what we'll find is that as we're holding on to God, what is even more true is that God is holding on to us that God refuses to let go of us, that God is always holding on to us with arms of love and grace and compassion. May we all be blessed with that experience of meeting God face to face. Thanks be to God. Amen.